Most of you had never probably heard the name of Alan Sandage. I hadn't until doing a little research, but Alan Sandage was known as the, uh, the greatest astronomer, the most influential astronomer of the 20th century. He's the guy that helped us understand the Hubble constant, which explains that the, that the universe is, is ever expanding. He's the one, his research is what helped us figure that out. He won the Crawford Award, which is the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for astronomy. One of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. He died in 2010 at the age of 84, but he grew up loving science, and he grew up as what he would say a practicing atheist. Uh, he didn't believe that God existed. He believed science. He loved science, uh, went in, obviously went into the field of science. But as he told his stories, he got older. He said as, as he got into his 50s, he one day was sitting at a, a conference, a science conference, and he said it just struck him. He'd never really thought about it before, but he started thinking about the intricacies of the human body, like how is it that we see? I mean, have you thought about that? Like, you've got this, like, this, like, soft piece of whatever it is that's an eye, and it captures light that reflects an image into your brain, and your brain interprets what you see. It's kind of freaky. It's kind of weird. And he started thinking about that, and he started wrestling with these, like, how, how in the world could all of this just be an accident? And then he said it kind of opened the door that he stepped through with his own research, astronomy in the universe. And he started looking at all the things that he knew and that he'd always believed and he began to question them. And he said, knowing what I know about science and the world and astronomy, how, how could this all be accidental? And he walked away from atheism and became a follower of Jesus Christ. There's some great stories like that of scientists. There's some, some stories of scientists who were atheist and ended atheist. But it causes us this tension, this struggle of science and faith. And if you're in high school, you've, you've probably walked into that already. You will when you walk into college for sure, but you've been in a biology class or a class science, and there's this tension of science and faith has presented itself. You might have had a teacher who was very much uh, from an atheist or naturalistic worldview, and, and they set up for the very first day of class and you know, basically told you, if you believe in God, you're a fool. Uh, I mean, that happens from time to time. And it causes us to go, man, I just don't know. Because, I mean, I want to believe the Bible, you know, because it's connected to God, and I kind of want to hedge my bets that way, just in case, right? But science, everybody just seems so convinced of what science tells us. Well, here's what I want you to understand tonight. We're going to talk about this, taking the Big Bang Theory as our TV show, and we're going to talk about ultimate beginnings. Now, it wasn't too long ago. I mean, just probably a few months ago. And it's fresh in my mind. Uh, we talked about Genesis 1 in the beginning, and we did some apologetic work. We're not going to go that route tonight. When you go into your small groups, your small group minister loves apologetics, they might take you down that route some. But let me tell you this. Even though we're not going that route of, hey, we're going to line up some proofs that, that what Scripture says can be scientifically true, we're not going that route. If you go, man, I need that. I, my brain functions that way. I really, really struggle with science. I'm on the science side. I want to be on the faith side. I just, I just can't see how you put the two of those together. Let me, let me do this for you. I, I will hook you up with some resources. There are tons of resources that can help you process that. And if you go, man, I don't really read. We can schedule some time. Go grab coke. Go grab lunch. We can talk about some of those things and see if it helps you begin to cross the threshold to understand that science and faith don't have to be mutually exclusive. They don't have to be aligned as enemies, that they can actually be friends. The problem is, for us, on the science side and the faith side, is we can't go back to the beginning 
to see how it happened. So, so really, when we talk about science, since we cannot recreate that, in the scientific method and test it and see if our theory is right, since we can't go all the way back, really our science of the beginning of time really is, is also kind of really more philosophy than science. There, there really is some faith in there both ways. But even if you go, hey, well, I believe God, you can't go back to the beginning and watch God create everything. So what we're left with is having to take the evidences that we have, the evidences that science has revealed to us, the things that we can see now, faith, and, and kind of pass all of these, those things through a grid and go, okay, what, what evidences best line up to be true? And there are some things scientifically that make faith a very favorable view. For example, astrophysicists today will tell you, not, not believers, astrophysicists will tell you that if the, the constant of gravity in the universe was one trillionth of one percent, one trillionth of one percent stronger, the, the universe would start collapsing on itself and destroy itself. One trillionth of one percent. The constant of gravity was one trillionth of one percent less than it is. We wouldn't have the constant gravity to get planets and solar systems to begin to revolve around stars. We wouldn't be able to have that. It would, things would just keep going. Scientists call that the razor's edge. That we're living on something so thin and so narrow that it kind of blows our mind, and that's where the struggle comes. Can't prove it, but we look at the evidences and we go, man, it looks like this universe was so fine-tuned and that our earth was so fine-tuned that maybe those evidences point not to an accident, but rather to a creator. But we're going to be in this battle. We're going to be in this tension. You're going to have it all through college. Even if, even if you become an apologist about creation, and you become one of the most brilliant speakers on the beginnings, and you line up in faith, you're going to have some questions along the way. There's going to be some people that come along and debate you and ask you some hard questions. It's just, just understand the tension is always going to be there, but we've got to look at the evidences and go, hey, what evidences line up best for us? Sir Fred Hoyle said about 100 years ago, he was an atheist scientist. He's the one, you might have heard his, not really theory, but his analogy he posed. He said, you know, when we look at how the universe is formed together, and if we say that it accidentally happened, it would be somewhat similar to us believing that, that right down the road, if you went down Highway 29 and you went north on 183, there's a big junkyard out uh, on 183, it would be the equivalent of believing that a tornado came through northern Williamson County and it hit that big junkyard and, and it just full of just junk, people, you know, broken down cars, things like that. And as the tornado blew through and those winds started spinning things around, that when it came out on the other side, it would have spun things around and it would have put together a Boeing 747 that could fly. That, that, that's Sir Fred Hoyle gave us that analogy almost 100 years ago. He said that would be actually more believable that that could happen than that the universe accidentally came to be. Now, understand the power of this. This is not a Christian or a believer saying that. He did say this, though. I've got a quote for you. Put it up here, and let's read it. Hit that next one. He said, one arrives at the conclusion that biomaterial, with their amazing measure or order, must be the outcome of intelligent design. He did not believe in God, but he believed that there was an intelligent designer out there because he looked at the science and he looked at the evidences and he said it would be more believable that a tornado could accidentally build a plane that flies than that all of the things that happened scientifically for our universe to exist could have happened 
by chance. Now, you may look at the evidences and you may come back and go, I just, I don't get, I can't get there. A lot of people have. But what you'll find out is if you choose a naturalistic worldview, if you, if you take this worldview that science is the only option, I do not believe in the supernatural, what happens is there will be some questions along the way that science doesn't answer for you. It's just, it's just this way it is. For somebody who says, hey, I love science, I believe science, and I'm a person of faith, you can marry those two things, and what you find out is sometimes faith fills some of the gaps of science, and sometimes science helps us understand our faith, that they can go together. You don't have to be an unintelligent, stupid follower of Jesus. You can be an intelligent scientist and also believe what Scripture says and teaches about the beginning of time, and there are tons of scientists out there that do. The problem is this. If I have a naturalistic worldview, if, if your science teacher says, man, I do not believe in God, God is not real, you're silly for believing that, we can prove everything by science, here's the difficulty for that science professor or science teacher. The moment that he or she agrees that there could be something bigger, there could be supernatural, they're now indebted to find out what that is. If there's something bigger than us out there, I mean, it's on us to discover what that is. If God does exist, then, then don't you think we should figure out who he is and why we're here and what he's doing? And the moment that you do that, you become accountable to something bigger than yourself. But if you've grown up all your life with the secular worldview that says the only thing that matters is humans, the humans are the, the top of the evolutionary chain, there's nothing bigger than us, we're all, we're all aiming for self-actualization, we're all aiming for the, the best 70 years on earth we have because when we die, we die, and, and, and there's nothing after that, you're living for yourself as king. But the moment you step over and there's something bigger, all of a sudden you're accountable. And if you're accountable, then you might have to change the way you live. You might have to change the way that you treat your spouse. You might have to change the way you see people of other color. You might have to change the way you do things with your money because there's something bigger than you. So it becomes very difficult for people who have this naturalistic worldview to even cross that threshold because it changes everything in their life. And so it's much easier just to go, I don't believe. I'll just be boss of my own life and I'll just use science as the only answer I can't do science and faith. But what I want you to understand this week, and we're going to talk about in our small groups, is what you believe about the beginning, how things begin, affects everything else that you believe. Let me, let me give you an example. You're familiar with the story of Adolf Hitler, the evil leader of Germany for World War II, killed over 6 million Jews, right? How, how does somebody, how does a human being come to the conclusion, and then lead an entire country to believe that this group of people who are born in another country, who look different than us, deserve to die simply because they're different than us. How does that happen? That happens when you have a secular worldview that says, you know what? We have 70 or 80 years here on earth. We accidentally got here, and when we die, we die. There's nothing left. So what we need to do is make the 80 years here that we accidentally showed up for the very best for me. Because there is no other ramifications. And so that's where this idea of social evolution comes from, that we can wipe out an entire group of people because they don't fit what I want to fit. Went to Auschwitz several years ago. I told you stories about it. Here's some pictures from those days. That right there is the gas chamber in Auschwitz where they used to put thousands of Jews in 
and they would drop gas in from the top. They thought they were getting a shower. They would suffocate to death. And then you can see this little entryway to the left. If you walk through the left right there, the next picture shows you where you go. Takes you into the incinerators where they would just put bodies in those and burn them to ash. Six million Jews. How, how does somebody get like that? Because it's all about me. I've got 80 years here, and if you're going to mess up my 80 years here, if you're going to keep me from being self-actualized, if you're going to keep me from having as much money or as much power as I want, there is nothing afterwards. So, hey, it's all about right now. That's the way a secularist or naturalistic worldview ends. That's how, if you are pro-life and you go, man, I believe that fetuses are babies, and I don't understand how somebody could not believe that, because if somebody believes that we accidentally got here, we were just an accidental collection of cells. It's not a far leap to say all of the, all of the cells inside that mom are just an accidental collection of cells. It's not, it's not life. But if you say, hey, I believe that God did, I believe that God is the creator of life, then I believe that that child inside that mother is a God-given form of life. Here's what else happens if you have a naturalistic worldview. Now, if, I'm talking about if you run to the extreme. Senior adults, somebody that's in their 90s, Somebody in their 90s, what are they giving back to the world? At 90, usually not a whole lot. Usually they're, they're draining resources. The, the, their life, the quality of life has, has passed them. They sit in a chair, they sit in a couch most of the day, watch Wheel of Fortune, do that thing. They might get out to, you know, granny dancers or something like that. But, but if you have a naturalistic worldview, you look and you go, you know what? Their quality of life has passed them and it will never get better. And it's only going to end in death. So you know what? They're really draining our resources it would be better for us just to get rid of senior citizens because our, our economy and our culture and our world would be better if you believe there's nothing. But if you have a different worldview, if you go, man, I believe that God created life, then all life matters, and I cherish that life even if it's 90. So it's a real, this is why what you believe about the beginning matters. So I want you to go to the book of John, chapter 1. We're not going to go to Genesis. We're going to look another direction. And we're going to go fast. I'm going to pick up the pace because we're going to run out of time. So if you go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, these four books are the, the gospel accounts of the story of Jesus. The book of Matthew starts with the lineage of Jesus. Matthew's talking to Jewish writers. So, so he's showing Jews how Jesus came from David, how David came from Abraham. That was a big deal. Mark skips the beginning of all. Mark starts his story with Jesus' ministry. Luke, who's the detail guy, he makes sure we know kind of the time and place and history in the Roman Empire that Jesus comes. But John starts something very different. Look at John 1.1. This is how he begins the story of Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word, capital W. That's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Stop there for a second. This is huge. When I speak, when my words come out, they're an expression of who I am. They tell you about me. They tell you what I think. Jesus is the literal expression of God. He is the word. And what John tells us here, and we're going to see it where he kind of reiterates in a second, he says that Jesus in the beginning was there. So he said, hey, Matthew, I know that Jesus came from David and David came from Abraham, but, but Jesus was actually around before Abraham. Jesus was there at the beginning of time because Jesus wasn't just there in the beginning. He he was with God. That Greek word says means that they were face to face. 
Like not, not one bigger than the other, not one looking down, that Jesus and God were equal. How was it they were equal? He, he tells us the very next phrase. He says, the word was God. John tells us that Jesus himself is God. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around, right? I mean, because we look and we go, well, wait, Jesus, I mean, Jesus prayed to God the Father. He didn't pray to himself. So, so there's kind of that going on. But yet Jesus also said, when you see the Father, you see me. I, I am God. Jesus very clearly claimed to be God. Here, here's the problem. God is eternal. Jesus was from the beginning. He, he's going to live. He, he is eternal on the other end. And, and you and I have these finite brains. You know, our, God said it to Isaiah this way. He said, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. I'm, I'm, my, my thoughts are higher than yours. You and I, we're never going to understand all the things about God. If you're waiting to understand all the things about God before you walk with him, it's just never going to happen because he's so much bigger than you. You can't do it. Your brain isn't made to be infinite because it, it's just not. So a couple of weeks ago, or, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, months or so ago, you remember we did that series and and uh, I referenced it earlier tonight. We did that story of Elisha and the two bears that came out. And we did that story. Well, that Sunday morning when we were in small groups, just to kind of create the, uh, the beginning of the morning, get people thinking, we put Kathleen and we put David Stippick, who was with us at the time, in two bear costumes. And so when people came up to small groups, there were two people walking around bears. And you're like, wait, what's going on? Oh, I get it. We're talking about that today. Well, David Stippick, if you remember him, he used to be our associate. He, he has a three-year-old named Riker. At the time, Riker was about two and a half. And so Riker comes up, and he's playing around out here, and he knows Kathleen. He loves Kathleen. And Kathleen comes around the corner in a bear outfit. Her face is there, but she's dressed like a bear, and there's some ears up here. And, and, and Riker's just like having a good time, and he sees Kathleen, and he freezes, starts crying, and he starts getting afraid. And, and so we're, talking about, we're like, no, it's Kathleen. For months, for months, he, he still asks, like, when they talk about Kathleen, oh, we're going to see Kathleen. He'll go, no, Kathleen Bear. No Kathleen Bear. This weekend, I'm at his house for his three-year-old birthday party, and, and he's reading this book called Going on a Bear Hunt, and so his birthday party was going to be a, a bear hunt for a giant teddy bear in the house. He had binoculars and everything, and so before the bear hunt started, I said, Riker, come here, and he came over, and he's like super excited. He's running around the house. There's cupcakes. All the family's there. He's just jacked, man, running, and he comes up, and I say, hey, are you going on a bear hunt? He goes, yeah, and he says, binoculars. And I said, are you going to go find Kathleen Bear? And his eyes got big, and he froze, and he like started like looking around, and he goes, no. And we all started laughing. Like four or five months later, he still freaked out about that. Where every one of us in here can differentiate the fact that that's Kathleen in a costume, but his brain is not developed enough to understand that, that there's a difference there. That's why peekaboo with kids, little kids, is so much fun for him, because when you cover your face, their brain is so underdeveloped, they, they, they literally think that you're not there. And then you go peekaboo, and they giggle and laugh because you just showed back up. It's just how the brain develops. When you read adolescent psychology or child psychology, you learn those things. So here's what I want you to understand. Your, your brain is not developed to the point, and, and it won't be, to understand an infinite God in all of his grandeur. Okay, So we just got to get over that. So it's hard for us. How is God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit Three in one. How do I describe that to you? I can't. It's something that we accept by faith just to go, hey, it's bigger than me. It's bigger than I can understand. But John tells us here that very truth, that Jesus is God and Jesus was there at the beginning. Now look at what he says in verse two. He says he was, in case you didn't catch it in verse one, 
He says, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything made that was, there was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the creating agent. Jesus in Genesis 1 is what made the heavens and the earth. Jesus was who made humans. Jesus was who made plants. And in verse 4, John tells us this, is in him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has overcome it. Here's what John doesn't know that he's telling us this, because John wasn't writing to us in, in 2017, where we're in this science faith debate. But what John says is this, Jesus predates creation, and that matters. Because he says the meaning that God, a loving God, and a purposeful God put us here, that is more important than science. Not that science is bad, it's good, we ought to chase after science. But a loving God created us, a purposeful God put us here for a reason. And so how we see the world, if we go, man, God loves us and he made this place for us and God is a purposeful God. He's been, he's been working since the beginning of time to accomplish his purposes and I'm here. Well, maybe I have a purpose. Maybe a loving God wants to draw me into a relationship. And that changes the way you see everything when it's held up to I accidentally got here. I'm just a collection of cells. There is no eternity. All that matters is this moment. When a loving, purposeful God creates you for something more than just this moment. And so that affects how you believe about everything else you believe. Because Jesus says in verse 4, in him was life. That meaning for life is found in Jesus. And so if you don't find your life's meaning in Jesus, you're living a purposeless existence. So what does that mean to us? Let me just give you a few things to to take with you when you go here in a second. One is this. I don't want you to be afraid of science. Don't be afraid of science. If you don't understand it and you get in a conversation with somebody and they, they kind of want to argue a bunch of things about science and you go, man, I believe that God created. I just, you seem so much smarter than me. That's okay. There, there are going to be some things about science that, that make us question our faith, but there's going to be some things about our faith that make us question science. It's just, it's always going to be there. That tension's there. But you don't have to be afraid of it. You know Why? Because God was in the beginning, Jesus was in the beginning, and guess what he created? Science. Science is just studying what Jesus made. So Jesus isn't up in heaven, like, like cowering in the corner, like, well, I hope they don't understand, they'll figure out science, and they won't believe me anymore. Jesus is going, man, I hope you get science. I hope you become the best scientist in the world, because the more you know about creation, the more you know about the creator, So Jesus is all for being an intelligent person because the more you learn about the beginning, the more you learn about him. You don't have to be afraid of science. And if you go, man, that really, that jacks me up. I want to know that. There are some great resources. I mean, you can can start with some books like um, Chuck Colson's book, How Now Shall We Live? Talks about worldview and why does that worldview matter? Why does it matter how we see the beginning? Lee Strobel wrote a book called The Case for Creation where he goes and interviews all kinds of scientists about what they believe and, and, and how, how they believe faith. One of those guys, he's a, a brilliant engineer, blows me away. I'm talking to a guy after I preached a couple Sundays ago, and, and he walks up, and his name's Dr. Bradley, and Dr. Bradley comes up to me, and he says, man, I talked about apologetics in the sermon. He said, man, I love that you talk about apologetics. What do you do with students? We kind of talked about it some. And he goes, yeah, I really, he's just as humble guy as can be. And he goes, uh, yeah, I, I love apologetics. I actually, I'm chapter three of Lee Strobel's book. Uh, and I, wait, what? 
I run back to my office and I look. Like one of the most brilliant scientists, engineers on this planet loves Jesus and goes to church here. I mean, it, and I'm like reading back his chapter and going, man, this guy is, he's, he, he is so intelligent and yet he loves the Lord. You don't have to be afraid. And so as you enter into that fray, you may not know all the answers, but know that they're out there. I want you to know this too. I've told you this before. The most popular neo-atheist in the world right now is a guy named Richard Dawkins. He's writing, every time he writes a book, he goes to the New York Times, bestseller list, it shoots up the chart. You know, there are multiple Christian apologists that have invited Dawkins to debate. Let's sit in a room and let's debate atheism and faith, and we'll get a group of people that can vote on who gives the best argument, and he won't debate because he's afraid. But you don't hear that because it's a naturalistic worldview in which we live. So you don't have to be afraid of science. But here's the second thing, man, that's probably the most important thing. But you can walk away with this. Is evaluate how you see your life. I mean, if a loving God created the earth, a purposeful God started the universe, if a loving and purposeful God created you, that ought to change the way you see the world. That ought to matter. You got to be able to go, man, God how, do, God, how do I love you better? If you love me, how do I love you better? God, if you created me for a purpose, what is that purpose? How do I step into it? Because if you created me for a purpose, I understand I'll only be fulfilled in living in that purpose. And so instead of walking around going, well, what are we going to do today? I hope my life is great. My goal is to go to college and get a good job and get married and have 2.5 kids and a house and a white picket fence and then have a retirement at 60 and travel the world and then I die. Not bad, but pretty purposeless. That, that, that's kind of naturalistic thinking. But you've got the supernatural. God says, I've got something bigger than that for you. I'm going to give you the opportunity to change the world. I'm going to give you the opportunity to influence eternity. And I love you and I purpose you to do that. So come journey with me and find out what that is. That ought to change the way that we live. It ought, it ought to make us different. I'll tell you this one last story. There's a guy, his name's Charles Foster. He's a veterinarian pretty intelligent, and a lawyer. And he teaches at Oxford University. Brilliant guy, right? He wrote a book. I got to look at the title. He wrote a book called uh, Being a Beast. And so here's what his book's about. It recounts his story. This is what this intelligent guy does. Multiple times a year, he lives like a badger. Okay, follow me first. This is a true story. He has some friends that have some property out in the middle of nowhere, like on a farm. He's dug a 15-foot tunnel under the ground and he goes out for weekends or sometimes weeks at a time and lives in the tunnel, the dirt tunnel. And he sleeps all during the day like a badger does. And he comes out at night, crawls around on his hands and knees, wearing a blindfold because badger's eyesight's not that good. And he scavenges for worms and eats worms and lives the life of a badger. Which leads us to this question. What is wrong with that dude? Right? Like, what in the world made you think, like, hey, I wonder what it's like to live like a badger, and I'm going to do this over and over again, and who cares about his book? Who's reading that? Like, who went, yeah, I want to know. Let me read his book and experience. And we look at something like that, and we go, man, that guy's crazy. I mean, he's a vet. He's a lawyer. He teaches at Oxford. Should be, that guy's crazy, and we kind of shake our head and, and probably discount him. But, but here, here's the analogy. Here's the question. How many of us, we look at that physically and we go, it's crazy. How many of us are doing that spiritually? You're pretty sharp spiritually. Gone to church, maybe all your life, you, you quote some Bible verses. 
but yet spiritually you've dug a tunnel and live in the dark. Jesus said this. He said, I'm the, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness is not overcoming. I'm the, I'm the life, light of life. But some of us spiritually, and we know it, but we've dug a hole and we live in it and we come out at night and we blindfold ourselves because we don't want to see truth. We, just, we want to keep living in our ignorance. And, we, and, and we, try, we go around our hands and knees ingesting junk by what we watch and what we take into our lives. And we look at this guy and we go, this guy is crazy. Maybe he's looking at us who call ourselves followers of Jesus and go, I don't know, you're crazy. You've got the light of life. You've got a God who created you who's loving and purposeful and you're wasting you're wasting your purposeful existence into purposelessness. We can shake our head at living like a badger, but spiritually, some of us are. It ought to scare us. Faith and science is hard. Discovery Magazine, 2016, posted an article. There are 70 quintillion planets in this universe that we know of, or say there's there. If you don't know what that means, that's 70 with 20 zeros behind it. You know how many of those Discovery Magazine said are habitable? One. The third rock from the sun and you're living on it. 70 quintillion planets in the universe. I don't know if I put the quote up. Did I put what he said up there? That magazine? Probably didn't. He said this. This is our, it's not, a, not a Christian magazine, not a Christian article. They said, those of us on earth, here's a quote have been dealt a, quote, fairly lucky hand. If you're gambling and you have one in 70 quintillion chances and you make that gamble, you're more than lucky. You're blessed. That's not lucky. Maybe we weren't dealt a lucky hand, like Discovery Magazine would tell us. Maybe there is a purposeful God and a loving God who at the beginning of time created. And when we understand that, step into it, changes everything else that we believe. Chase after science. Don't be afraid of it. But more importantly, ask yourself, are you living in the light? Jesus came to be the life. That's what John 1, 4 and 5 says. Is your life full? Is your life abundant? Or does your life look like everybody else's life who actually believes that we're here by accident and when we die, we die? It would be a shame to know different, but to live that way. Let me pray for us.